morning, church. Our reading for today is taken from the book of First King, First King chapter 8, verse 1 to 11. First King chapter 8, verse 1 to 11. And the word of God reads, Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the ships of the Israelite families, to bring up the act of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. All the Israelites came together to King Solomon at the time of festival in the month of Ethanim, the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the act, and they brought up the act of the Lord, and the ten of meeting, and all the secret punishings in it. The priests and the Levites carried them up. And King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the act sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be counted or recorded. The priest then brought the act of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the act and overshadowed the act and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that your ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place, and they are still there today. There was nothing in the act except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Europe, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the clouds filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Marco, very much indeed, and uh, thank you everybody for praying for Raymond and Alita. Um, they are indeed, I think, beginning to slowly recover. We saw Raymond over a Zoom call yesterday in the elders' meeting, and he did look a bit better. A particular encouragement was that um, when Alita was in hospital the previous Saturday, um, she, in, and, and in a pretty bad way, I think, she could hear... Uh, in her mind, the brothers praying for her. And the interesting thing is that on that Saturday morning, the elders had met and we were praying for her. And when Raymond told her that, um, it was a tremendous encouragement to her. So do please keep, keep them in your prayers. Pray that they will soon be restored to us. But in the meantime, let's have our masks on and our Bibles open. And uh, I will ask the Lord to be with us as we look at this absolutely marvellous passage together. 
Our gracious God, you are so glorious that the heavens cannot contain you. And yet you have assured us that you dwell with those who have a humble and contrite heart. We pray that just as Jesus left the majestic glory of your heavenly throne to dwell amongst men, that you would come and dwell among us this morning by your Holy Spirit through your word. We pray that your divine finger will help us as we read your word, that your finger will point with great skill into our hearts, applying your word to each one of us individually. And most of all, we pray that as your word both humbles us and lifts us up with a great sense of gospel grace and joy, that we might enjoy communion with you as dearly loved children, enjoying communion with their Father. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. William became a Christian at university. Um, he joined the Christian Union and was soon involved in all their activities on campus. Uh, he took every opportunity to tell his friends about the Lord Jesus. And during the university holidays, he went on several short-term mission trips. Um, after varsity, he got a good job uh, with a mining company. And a couple of years later, he married his childhood sweetheart, Joanna. William and Joanna joined the local church where they greatly enjoyed the Bible teaching and made a number of special friendships with the young adults group. William was really good at his job and uh, before long he was being given responsibility for a number of mining projects across Africa. He was well paid and there were therefore plenty of opportunities for William and Joanna to travel together at either end of his many business trips. Now, of course, that meant a lot more time uh, away from home and away from church. But they reasoned that these opportunities were just too good to miss. And surely they would be able to pick up on church life later on, wouldn't they? Well, the years went by and somehow they never did quite get back to church. There just seemed to never be enough time but six months ago, William was retrenched. He's been applying for other jobs. Nothing's come up yet. And with every rejection letter, William has become increasingly anxious and bitter. Their old friends at the young adults group have been encouraging them to come back to church. And they do indeed miss the fellowship that they enjoyed all those years ago but they feel inside that God has turned his back on them. He doesn't seem to be answering their prayers, and they don't know how to put things right. Well, William and Joanna aren't, of course, a real couple, but it's a familiar story, isn't it? And it might surprise you to learn that this is precisely the challenge that the writer of 1 Kings is addressing in his books. You see, for centuries, the people of God had enjoyed the blessings of their special covenant relationship with the Lord. Blessings of land and peace and prosperity, 
under the Lord's protection and love. But by the time 1 Kings was written, they were in exile in a foreign land. They're miles away from home and from the centre of national life, which was the temple in Jerusalem. Yes, it seemed as if God had turned his back on them. And their destiny, as God's special people, seemed to be in tatters. So what on earth had they missed? And what, if anything, could be done to put things right? Now, listen carefully. Last week, we learned about Solomon's wisdom. Do you remember his great moral judgment, which was famous throughout the world? We saw that this wisdom was given to him by God and brought him great success and enormous wealth. Now, here's the interesting thing. We saw that the report of Solomon's wisdom was recorded in two different places. So we began by looking at chapters 3 and 4 and what they had to say about it. And then we looked at what the Queen of Sheba had to say about Solomon's wisdom in chapter 10. And in between those two sections, there's a long passage uh, which is all about the construction of the temple. And it's as if the author is saying that all of Solomon's wisdom was to be directed into designing and building the temple and all of his enormous wealth would be needed to fund it. In other words, Solomon's temple was the wisest achievement of the world's wisest man. And so uh, this morning we're looking at what the Bible says about the significance of that tremendous building project under the title, King Solomon's Worship. I've got just two headings for you this morning. First, Solomon's temple. We want to know what it was like. And then our second heading is Solomon's prayer, because his prayer tells us what the temple was for, what's so special about it, and what it means for you and me this morning. So firstly then, Solomon's temple. It actually takes the author five whole chapters to tell us all about it. And I want to give you a sense of the sheer majesty of it, from the text itself. Because, you see, it's written in such a way that the reader is supposed to go, wow! Uh, to borrow a phrase from last week, it's meant to take your breath away. Now, these days, of course, we can see photographs of ancient buildings on the internet or perhaps the History Channel on television, and they do indeed often take our breath away. And I guess, um, by comparison, a description in words might seem rather dull. But of course, in the ancient world, there were no films, there were no photographs, and if you wanted to know about a building like the temple, you had to read about it. And in this case, the description is absolutely breathtaking. For a start, virtually everything is covered in gold. Solomon generated half his annual income from gold and he would have needed the whole lot simply to build this. So turn with me 
uh, to chapter 6, just a couple of pages back in your Bible, chapter 6 and verse 20, and listen to this. Verse 20 reads, The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 wide, and 20 high. He overlaid the inside with pure gold, and he also overlaid the altar of cedar. Solomon covered the inside of the temple with pure gold, and he extended gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary, which was overlaid with, yes, you've guessed it, gold. So he overlaid the whole interior with gold. He also overlaid with gold the altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary. Now, I think my English teacher at school would have given the writer a B- minus because of the repetition. But you can't miss the point. There was gold everywhere. And uh, I find myself wondering why they even bothered to use exotic wood. Uh, we're told in these chapters that they used acacia and cedar, but no one was ever going to see the wood because it was covered with gold. And as well as the, the sheer amount of gold, the craftsmanship was absolutely stunning. Just glance ahead to chapter 7, verse 16. Chapter 7, verse 16. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to set on tops of the pillars. Each capital was five cubits high. A network of interwoven chains festooned the capitals on top of the pillars, seven for each capital. He made pomegranates in two rows encircling each network to decorate the capitals on top of the pillars. He did the same for each capital. The capitals on top of the pillars in the portico were in the shape of lilies, four cubits high. On the capitals of both pillars, above the bowl-shaped part next to the network, were the 200 pomegranates in rows all around. Well, we can't imagine all the detail, but just imagine an enormous pillar, and on top of it, all of those pomegranates. I mean, imagine trying to carve 200 pomegranates on top of a very tall pillar. I mean, if, even if you were highly skilled, it would take you an extremely long time. So, friends, have you got the idea, the overall impression here is of exquisite craftsmanship and incredible amounts of gold. And there's something else in these chapters that caught my attention, and I'm sure it'll catch yours too, because if you think about it, today in every city, there's always some massive construction project going on somewhere. And if you happen to live near it or work near it, it can be really rather a nuisance. So there's a surprise in chapter 6, verse 7. Chapter 6, verse 7. In building the temple, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used. And no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. In other words, this massive building was being constructed in almost complete silence. See, they, they, they made everything the right shape and size at the yard, so that when they brought it on site, all they had to do was slot it into place. And the point, you see, is not that the neighbours had been complaining about the noise. The point is that the construction of the temple 
was done in an atmosphere of reverence and awe. This week I came across an excellent digital reconstruction of the temple on YouTube, and I'm going to send you the link after the service, because I think it is so brilliant, it's well worth your attention. It does a great job of showing us just how glorious the temple was. And not just glorious in a human way. It was also glorious in a divine way. So uh, as we read the account of the dedication ceremony, which Marco did a moment ago, just look again at how that ends in chapter 8 and verse 10. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Now, I guess in your uh, geography classes at school, you might have had to learn the names of various different cloud formations, the cumulus nimbus and the Cirrus and so on, I can't remember what they all meant, but you won't find the cloud in verse 10 in any geography textbook. It's the cloud of God's glory. See, suddenly the temple fills with this sort of mist, and the mist is sent by God to show that he is present in the temple. The Jews recognize it immediately because it's what happened back in the days of Moses when they built the tabernacle. Do you remember the tabernacle was the place of worship before they had the temple? And uh, what happened was that God had just rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He had given them his marvelous promises that they would be his people. They were to be a holy nation belonging to him. He would be their God. And he told them to build a tent as a place of worship. And as soon as it was finished, the cloud of God's glory came to fill it. And they knew what it was because the cloud led them through the desert for 40 years. And they recognized it because when Moses went up Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, a thick cloud descended on the mountain. And now this exact same cloud comes to fill the temple. God is there. So have you got the picture? The temple really is a splendid building. There's a lot more we could say about it. The question is, what on earth was it for? And uh, to answer that, we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning focusing on Solomon's prayer. That's our second point. Because, you see, this is really where the emphasis lies in these chapters. Now, um, I hope that White will forgive me for saying this, but I think that a helpful way to think about chapter 8 is that it's rather like a triple-decker club sandwich. Uh, And Solomon's prayer is right in the middle of it. So follow me closely. Notice chapter 8 begins and ends with celebration and sacrifice. So, the beginning of the chapter, 
we're told that the number of sheep and cattle, I'm in verse 5, the number of sheep and cattle they slaughtered was too many to be counted. But at the end of chapter 8, he has a go, and in verse 63, fast forward to there, we're told that Solomon offered a sacrifice of fellowship offerings to the Lord. Now listen to this. 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So that's a pretty big celebration, isn't it? But have you got the, the artistry of it? At the beginning and the end of the chapter, there is celebration and there is sacrifice. Then the next layer in on the triple-decker sandwich is verses 12 to 21. And verses 54 to 61. Now, don't worry about the detail, but in both sections, blessings are given. A blessing is given to Israel, a blessing is given to the Lord. But then, right in the very middle of the sandwich, in verses 22 to 53, there is Solomon's prayer. Now, why am I laboring the point? Because being in the middle means. It's what's really important. That's how Hebrew literature works. So because this prayer is right in the middle of chapter 8, we're going to spend a moment or two focusing on that. Let me start by directing your attention to verse 27. Solomon prays, verse 27, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, can't contain you. How much less this temple I've built. Now there's a puzzle there, isn't there? Uh, Solomon has built a house for God. It's a very impressive house. But the idea that God might live in it is absurd. He's simply too big. You can't squeeze God into a temple. So Solomon prays, verse 28, Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, My name shall be there so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So the point is you, you can't fit God into a house, a palace, or even a temple. He's beyond us. He's utterly transcendent. But can God still be present? Well, we know the cloud is there. The cloud is God's glory, and the cloud is in the temple, and yet at the same time, God is everywhere. So, is God in the temple or not? It's a puzzle. But as we think about this a little bit more, I think the puzzle is resolved like this. You see, the temple becomes a kind of communication channel between where God is in heaven 
and where the people of God are down on planet Earth in Jerusalem. So you, you can't bring God down to be contained in a building, but you can have a place that's rather like an internet portal or a telephone exchange. Because, you see, the text is saying that the temple is the place where your call can be put through to God. So look carefully again at verse 30, very important verse. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. So, so God's not here, he's in heaven. But I think the idea is that calls are directed to him through the temple so that they reach him. So try for a moment to imagine the time before mobile phones and telephones were invented. When you wanted to get a message to somebody, you either had to send uh, the message with a rider on horseback or by ship. It took weeks, months, perhaps even years. But just imagine the excitement of being told that because of this new communication channel, you could get through immediately to someone who was a long way off. Well, the temple is like that. You could pray towards the temple... And even though God is in heaven, he's going to hear immediately. And then there's this rather wonderful phrase that sticks in our minds because it's so very odd. Now, you know it's basic biology that we see with our eyes and we hear with our ears. We know that. The people in One Kings know that. It's basic. But look again at verse 29. So odd. Solomon prays, may your eyes be open toward this temple, dot, 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 so that you will hear. Isn't that odd? Lord, please open your eyes so you will hear. It's a very strange way of talking, isn't it? But it can't be a mistake because he says the same thing again in verse 52. Verse 52, may your eyes be open to your servant's plea and to the plea of your people Israel, and may you listen to them. And I think what Solomon means is, Lord, please will you give this your attention? When we come to this place, please will you notice us? Notice us with your eyes, and may your eyes be open so that you will take our call. So can you see that the temple was meant to function as a kind of spiritual telephone exchange? So let's imagine it's working well, that the calls are being put through. What kind of calls are being made? Well, I'm sure you know when you go to change your cell phone, uh, the, provi the provider will ask you what you use your phone for, uh, how many calls you make, when you make them, and then they'll adjust the contract to suit your particular needs. So what kind of calls are going to be made through the temple? 
answer. Forgiveness calls. Look down at verse 30. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And do you know that in every single one of the seven paragraphs that follow, you've got the same phrase. Hear from heaven and forgive. Lord, when we've sinned in this way and we pray, hear from heaven and forgive. Now, friends, can you imagine the pain of having wronged someone close to you and you can't contact them in order to say sorry? Maybe they won't take your calls. Maybe they're overseas and you can't reach them. Maybe they've changed their phone number. And the pain of the broken relationship with no possibility of resolving it is intense. But you see, the great blessing of the telephone exchange, which is the temple, is that your calls get through to God immediately. You can say sorry, and God can grant you his forgiveness. Very interesting, it turns out in the text that God can even do this at a distance. So Solomon starts by saying, when we pray inside the temple, Lord, please hear and forgive. Then a little bit later he says, well, when we pray in the city, we're outside the temple, but we're in the city, Lord... Please hear and forgive. And then a bit later, he says, when we pray for somewhere else in Israel, Lord, please hear and forgive. So staying with the analogy of a cell phone, it's almost like he's testing the strength of the signal. You know, if I'm miles away from Jerusalem, will I still get a signal? Will the call go through? And the climax to the whole thing comes in verse 46 and following. Please look at it with me. Verse 46. When they, that is to say Israel, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to his own land, far away or near, And if they have a change of heart in the land where they're held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their conquerors and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you toward the land you gave their fathers, toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, Then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. And forgive your people who've sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they've committed against you and cause their conquerors to show them mercy. For they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of that iron-smelting furnace. You see, what he's saying is, 
what if things get so bad that I'm driven away from the promised land and sent into exile under God's judgment? But while I'm there, I actually do want the chance to say sorry. What then? If I pray towards the temple from there, would you take the call? And God says, well, even if you're as far away as that, yes, I will take the call. Now, friends, can you see why the temple, therefore, was so very, very precious to Israel? Partly because it was such an amazing building. Yes, it was. Partly because there was a cloud there which said that in some sense... God is in this place. But the main reason it was precious to Israel was because it gave you access to God and the chance to say sorry and the chance to receive his forgiveness. So can you imagine the anguish when not only did the people find themselves carried off into exile, that was bad enough, but on top of that, the telephone exchange was destroyed. Because that's precisely what happened. The Babylonians did it in 587 BC. The immediate question when that happened was, well, can we still pray? I mean, is there a way back into relationship with God? Or are we actually cut off from God forever? We began this morning by thinking about William and Joanna. And they were saying, you know, we've tried praying. But it seems like our prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. We just can't seem to get through. And if only we knew how we could actually speak to God with the assurance he would take the call. Well, that's exactly what it was like for Israel when the temple was destroyed. You will find some Christians even today who believe that if we could only get back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, that the telephone line to heaven would be reopened The Lord Jesus has a different answer. John, in his gospel, tells us what Jesus said. He's speaking in Jerusalem, inside the temple, and Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. But of course, the people had absolutely no idea what Jesus meant. They said it's taken a very long time to build. Of course, in Jesus' day, Solomon's temple was long gone, and King Herod had built another one on the same site. But it had taken 46 years to build it, and lots of highly skilled craftsmanship had gone into it. So they said to Jesus, there is absolutely no way you could rebuild this thing in three days. But of course, they had no idea what Jesus was really talking about. But John explains that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. That through his death and resurrection, he will be the new communication channel, the new telephone exchange, 
So picture the splendor and the glory of Jesus. Picture God present with Jesus by his spirit in the cloud. But most of all, picture that promise that any call directed to God through the true temple, who is Jesus, will get through. God will take the call. The signal is long distance. You can never be out of range. And however far you might have wandered away from God, when you pray through Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, asking God to forgive you, God will take the call. He will hear from heaven and forgive. And if you've never done it, why not make the call this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this glorious construction, Solomon's temple. Thank you for the splendor of it. But most of all, thank you for the great significance of it. A channel open to heaven by which our prayers for forgiveness can be heard. And how we praise you that whilst there is now no temple in Jerusalem, we have the Lord Jesus. And thank you that his death and resurrection have opened up a way for us into the heavenly places and that you have promised to take the call. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.